So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 3. We are going to be taking a break from our resurgence series that we've been walking through the last number of months, and we're going to focus in on, obviously, a Christmas theme throughout this month. And the series that we're going to walk through is, is this concept of, of God unwrapped, which God unwrapped, is his name is Jesus. Jesus is God unwrapped for us. And I, I want to use this theme to, to understand something about, about how we understand who God is. Because for the church and for the culture, that is the question. Who is God? What is he like? There's always, whether somebody has been a part of a church or followed Jesus with their whole life, or maybe they've been, maybe they're new to what it means to understand who Jesus is, that question comes to us all the time. What is God like? What would God say? What would God do? Well, the beauty of the way God has worked in human history is that Jesus came into the world who was God and unwrapped for us what it means to understand who God is. And so we're going to be looking at some different passages that where Jesus kind of unwraps and, and gives understanding to humanity about who God is. And this morning we're going to talk specifically about Jesus unwrapping this concept of the God of salvation. Now I want you to hear me before we jump into this passage. Really important is that when we talk about the concept of salvation, already 50% of the room is checked out. Because you think, well, salvation, I got that one. I prayed a prayer. I've been going to church for years. This is for all those people who don't know who God is yet or they're new to faith. And No, this is for all of us. And we'll talk about this in a moment because there's this, there has to be an anticipation of when God wants to reveal himself to us in a new way, maybe a deeper and a profound way, that we have to go back and be like we were when we were kids. Something, something horrible happens to us as adults. We become, we become cynics. We become wounded by our own life. We become negative. We become pessimistic. And we lose what it is to truly encounter God as a child. That's the way Jesus said over and over again, if we're going to get him, if we're going to understand his kingdom, how do we approach him? As a child. Now remember for a moment, go back and if, you know, so those, those of you younger than him, this is not too hard of a stretch for you, but for all those that are older like me, go back to when you were a child and think about Christmas. Think about how Christmas has changed for you. Because when you were a kid, most kids, if you were like me, Christmas was the highlight of the year. Anybody like that? I mean, I literally could not wait. I would count the days, and we had, you know, one of these Advent calendars that would start at the beginning of December, but the coolest part is that they were Advent calendars with chocolate treats behind each little door. And then me and my three sisters would get turns opening which one, and leading all the way up to Christmas. And then, obviously, what is the, the biggest deal about Christmas as a kid? presence. It is. Now, as you get older, and then you have the right answers. Well, it's about giving, and it's about Jesus. But as a kid, you're like, it's just about presence, right? And I remember many Christmas Eves, I didn't sleep at all. Not at all. I was just laying in my bed awake, knowing that my parents had put a time frame on when I could get out of bed and wake them up and go look for my stocking, because we always hit our stockings. And every year, they would seem to push it later and later. I had them one year, I, I said I, they'd let me get up at 5 a.m. And they're like, no, no more of that. We're going back to 7, right? You're going to sleep. And it's just this anticipation. Why? Because the whole point is when you get to, to Christmas morning, this anticipation, you're going to open something that you've been waiting to understand and see what it is. That's the beauty of what it means to be a child. The same thing is true with Jesus. The world is waiting for God to show up, and he has in human form in Jesus. And as people who worship him, when we come to seasons where we're reminded of his encounter in our life, there should be this anticipation that God wants to show something new of who he is to me this Christmas. Even if I've been around the church for 30 or 40 or 50 years, Jesus wants to reveal himself in a new way. And a lot of it has to do with going back to the beginning of what it means to follow Jesus. 
So the passage we're going to look at today in John 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 21. Embedded in the middle of that passage is a verse that probably everybody in this room could recite. It's John 3, 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible, which is always taken out of context every time it's quoted. It has to come into the context of what we're going to encounter when I'm going to read in just a moment. But before I read the passage, I want you to, to really, this is really important, to get what we're going to get out of this passage, to understand what it really means to unwrap who God is in Jesus. We have to go back and please, if you can, go back to the beginning of what it means to follow Jesus for you. Just go back to the, push away all the things that your faith has become and go back because what we're going to read in a moment is really important. There's a guy named Nicodemus who, he's, he's religious. He's a Jew, and of the Jews, he's a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was somebody who was an elitist, who was, in fact, the word Pharisee has to do with being separated. And, and so this group or this sect of, of, of religious leaders removed themselves from their own people and kind of lived as though they were better, they knew more, they understood more. And so there's this guy named Nicodemus, and what's interesting about him is he's the guy that's supposed to have all the answers. And yet he goes to Jesus because Jesus has something that he's never seen before. And he's a religious man encountering God unwrapped in his context. And I want you to understand that because majority of us in this room are religious people by practice. We do the church thing. We read the Bible. We're Christians. But sometimes we forget what it means to encounter the God of the universe because, because we've become so religious in our approach to God. So if you would, just put aside all of what you understand and, and, and put yourself in, in Nicodemus' shoes. He thinks he has a handle on God, but now he's going to realize that Jesus is taking him a completely different direction than he expected. And it's almost confusing to him. So as we read this, I want to read all uh, of the story, verse 1 to verse 21. These are all the 21 verses of, of this story. But just listen, again, even maybe you want to read through from your own Bible or your, your phone or your iPad, or maybe you just want to close your eyes. Just listen to the encounter that Jesus has with a man who's seeking, who thinks he has the answers, but Jesus reveals something deeper and profound to him. Starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was uh, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's, his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it, is, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, uh, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive or did not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has descended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because 
he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's a lot. I know you're like, man, Pastor John just keeps going and going. Nobody fell asleep. That's good. This is the word of God. You shouldn't. <laughs> but what, what's going on in this passage? What can we understand? Again, I want you and I in the mindset of Nicodemus. He's coming and he's asking some questions to Jesus. But every answer that Jesus gives him is not the answer that he's expecting to have. Why? Because he has a religious mindset that has actually removed him further from God than drawing him to God. So what, what's embedded in his questions and his responses to Jesus are the very things that you and I, whether we know it or not, we buy into as our plan of salvation. The way that we think that we're saved and we're reconnected with God and that we are assured that our sins are forgiven and that we will be in heaven someday. Well, how we kind of wrap up salvation is the way that I think Nicodemus was viewing salvation, which was not what Jesus had in mind. So four things. Our plan of salvation is reflected in Nicodemus' response to Jesus. Look at verse 1. The first thing is this. We are saved by our religious status. Now, I know none of us would say this if you've been in the church but we think this, we believe this. So he says, so it says that he, he's a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the Jews. He is one who's a teacher, he understands things. And so for him, he's the pinnacle of Judaism. He is the top of the religion. He's the one who knows everything. And so he comes to Jesus not as a novice, not as somebody who doesn't understand. He comes to Jesus as an expert. And, and he wants to know more information. And so there's this sense of, of, of being a bit elite that he's coming to Jesus and, and approaching him, which obviously doesn't really work well for Jesus. Now, I know most of us in this room, we would never want to be called a Pharisee, and none of us would stand up and say, well, hey, I'm, I'm pretty spiritual, I'm pretty perfect, I'm pretty religious. None of us would say that. But I know we always grade ourselves on a sliding scale, right? And this is what we say. Well, I'm not perfect, but I know I'm better than that person. Now, you know and I say that, but we think that. We think of somebody else who's more broken or more sinful or more rebellious, and we think, hey, I know I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect but Jesus, but I know I'm not like that. That's the exact conversation that was going on that Jesus told the story of, of the religious leader and the tax collector who were before God and praying, and what was the prayer of the religious leader? Thank God that I'm not like that tax collector. I may not be perfect, but I'm not that bad. And then the tax collector's prayer before God was that he couldn't even look to the heavens. He had to beat his chest. Why? Because he was so broken over his own sin. There's this idea that you and I come, even though we know that we need Jesus and we know that we're broken, there's something in us, there's a little bit of pride that somehow I, I don't necessarily need as much as other people. And I just want you to think about that for a moment. When, when religious kind of attitudes creep their way in, it's, it's this idea that somehow I'm a little bit better. Now let's just break down salvation. We know we're not going to get into a long discussion on this, but we are saved by grace. What is grace? It is God's unmerited favor that he extends to humanity. Nothing that we've done, nothing that we can earn, nothing that we can make happen for ourselves. We are saved by grace. Then how in the world can I be more saved than somebody else? Just think about that for a moment. How can I be any better before God than any other sinner who maybe has more outward struggles and challenges than I do? How am I more saved than they are? Why? Because it's grace. If it's God's choice, then it isn't my ability then it doesn't matter how spiritual I think that I am. But sometimes we do that, that we're just a little bit more saved than everybody else. When we get into heaven, there's not going to be certain people who are more saved and others that are less saved. They're just saved. 
Why? Because we all get in under the same thing. We all get under the grace of God. Now, there's reward that God will give, but it has nothing, that reward has nothing to do with your access into heaven, your access to God. That's a thing based on grace. But we have this idea that I'm just a little bit better than somebody else. No. We're all just as broken. We're all in need of a Savior. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a religious leader. Second thing, look at verse 2. We are saved by our private faith. Verse 2, it says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, remember, if you've read through the Gospels, one thing you'll notice that Jesus did all kinds of miracles. In fact, Nicodemus even acknowledges those. And he was always out in the public all the time. He was very accessible to people. Crowds were always following him around. And so Nicodemus probably encountered Jesus multiple times during the day. But he doesn't choose to go to Jesus during the day. He chooses to go at night. Why? Because he's embarrassed. Because he doesn't want to show up to this upstart rabbi that everybody's following that a lot of his religious buddies don't really like. And so he goes at night and he wants to keep his understanding of God private with Jesus because he doesn't want it to get out. Because if it gets out, then there's this the risk of embarrassment. And this is something that you and I have to come to grips with. I think in our own culture, what we have a tendency to do. Faith in the church and faith in culture has become a private affair and it was never intended to be. That's why in the public realm, so many people will say, well, my faith is a private thing. If your faith is a private thing, then it is no faith at all. How private was Jesus about his connection with the Father? He wasn't private at all. How private was he about signs and wonders that he brought to the world? He wasn't private at all. It was always out in the public. But there's this privacy that we kind of bring is why I think, honestly, I think for some of us, our salvation has become so kind of managed and so kind of boxed in that we're afraid if Jesus shows up in certain contexts, we're not going to like it because we'll be embarrassed because our faith has become private. It isn't, doesn't mean that you have to stand on the street corner with signs and a bullhorn telling people they're going to go to hell unless they follow Jesus. But it is that there's a way of living out our faith that means it's a public affair. It's something people should see and experience and know because of what, who Jesus is. It's not a private thing, but Nicodemus wants to keep it private. Why? Because he doesn't want Jesus to get out. You know, it's, it's like it's, that, it's that, that embarrassing relative that shows up at the wrong time. You're like, oh no, we don't want you here, right? I love you, but please don't show up right now. Anybody have that relative? You don't have to raise your hand if they're sitting next to you right now, but we all have that, right? And I feel like that's the way we treat Jesus sometimes. Like, oh no, no, you can show up all these years, but don't show up here because that would really be bad for me. That's what Nicodemus is saying to Jesus. He's coming in this, kind of taking this, this private bent. You know, even David, when he was rejoicing, King David, when God returned the Ark of the Covenant to Israel, do you remember what he, it happened to him? Literally, he's half naked dancing in public before God. That's not a private faith. That's an outward passion that God, he's excited about what God is doing. Then there's a third thing, and that is that we are saved by our knowledge. Verse 4, I love Nicodemus' response. Jesus says, you have to be born again. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus doesn't have a category for born again. He's got, I got one birth, that's it. I don't know, this, this born again thing. It doesn't fit into my understanding. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But that's the part of salvation that you and I have to come to grips with. You and I cannot fully understand the way God works. We can't. We were, if you were here last week, we talked about that. When we understand everything about God, we are God and we keep him in a box. So Jesus introduces a concept to Nicodemus that he doesn't have a category for. That there's another birth, there's something about re being reborn that I have to understand that I didn't get before. 
there comes a place when you're so desperate for God that when you encounter Jesus, you don't come up with great explanations. You just know that God has done something so profound in your life, that's all that matters. It's like the, the story of, of the blind man that Jesus heals and the religious leaders come along and they said, no, nope, wrong day, wrong time, wrong person, you shouldn't be healed. And all he says to them when they ask him to testify, he says, listen, all I know is I was blind and now I can see. That's the power of God. He didn't have all the great theological arguments. He didn't have all of the understanding of what the religious leaders were bringing to the table, but he knew one thing for sure. I encountered the God of the universe and I was blind and now I can see and I'm changed. Argue with that. See, that has to be something in us that our salvation, our understanding of God has to go beyond our knowledge. Otherwise, you and I could save ourselves through our own knowledge. But there has to be something supernatural, something dynamic beyond what we've experienced in our own lives. And then the final thing of what we, our plan of salvation is that we end up being saved by our own definition. Again, verse 9, Nicodemus, after Jesus explaining all this, he says this phrase, how can these things be? What is he saying? This is impossible. This, is, this just doesn't work. I, I don't know how this could be possible that what you're saying is true because it's something, again, that is so foreign. And I think that's part of the, the concept of salvation that you and I should be in awe of. There should be this, this, this place in us when we look at our lives and we know our brokenness and we know our failure and we know our sin that keeps us from God and we know we're headed apart from what Jesus is doing that we look at our lives and say, how can this be? How can the God of the universe love me enough to send his son into the world to die for me? How can this be? Anybody ever had one of those moments before? Sometimes when you and I become sophisticated in our faith and we grow older in our faith and more mature, we lose those moments of childlike wonder of what God could do for me. That's what he's, he's trying to bring Nicodemus back to the moment. Remember, yeah, be born again. Why? Because when you're born again, you're like a child again. There's this sense of awe. One of the most powerful songs is a song that probably every single one of us has sung multiple times in our life, and we sing it because we know it, because it's so familiar, but we forget what it says. Every funeral, every memorial almost that I've ever done or been a part of, the same one song is always sung. What do you think it is? Amazing Grace. Just take the first line. We talk, Amazing Grace. Is it really amazing? We don't sing it that way. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. What? That saved a wretch like me. Stop right there. When you sing that song, do you think about that? Is God's grace amazing? And you know how wretched that we are as human beings, that the God of the universe by grace would save me? That's what Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus back to. Salvation is this overwhelming, incredible reality that the God of the universe chooses me, not in a moment, but he chooses me for all time. He knows that even though I give my life to him tomorrow morning, I get up, I'm going to blow it again but his grace sustains me the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. That's God's amazing grace. How can this be? And Jesus is like, oh, it can be. It can be. I want you to understand that's Nicodemus' approach. That's our approach to God. And that's why I think sometimes we miss the joy of our salvation. We miss the understanding of what it means to truly be saved from our sin. It isn't just that we aren't going to hell. It's that the fact that the God of the universe loves us enough to embrace us, to bring us into relationship with him now and forever. That's this amazing thing called salvation. Jesus is unveiling this, unwrapping this for Nicodemus. What does he unwrap for him? Four other things that Jesus highlights that are God's process of salvation. This is the way God sets it up. This is, again, this is Jesus revealing to Nicodemus and to us the way that God has laid things out. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
God's plan for salvation has to do with change through transformation. So Jesus says this, he says in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say that you must be born again. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about being born again means you need to be renewed. You need to be changed. You can't just modify. You can't just adjust. Something brand new has to take place in you or you won't get it. God wants to bring change, but we like to bring change through modification. Jesus brings change through transformation. Completely different process. And the concept of being born again means, again, I revisit what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to go back to the beginning? What does it mean to be renewed from the inside out? Not partially, not rearranged, not just modified, not remodeled, but actually renewed completely from the inside out. That's what salvation brings to the human soul. See, we, we love the concept of modification. We would rather modify something and make it look good on the outside, even though it might look horrible on the inside, because appearances matter to us. But God wants to come and do something completely new from the inside out. And that's why Nicodemus is struggling with this. Why? Because Judaism had become all about appearance. It had nothing to do with what was going on inside. It's just how I portrayed to people how religious or how spiritual I was. And Jesus comes along and says, no, it's about being renewed completely, being born all over again and starting anew so that everything is new from the inside out. I shared about a little over a year ago, our downstairs got flooded. Not a fun four-month experience. Don't wish to repeat it. The upside was that State Farm paid for a brand new downstairs for our house, which is great. But it was interesting when the first adjuster came out to look at the damage and assess how much they were going to pay for us to have our downstairs redone, he completely lowballed. I mean, like less than half of what we needed in order for this to happen. And he was making, you know, we had wood floor that, that had, you know, water had impacted it up to a certain point. And we we're like, well, you can cut it there, and that's still good. I'm like, are you going to match floors that are like a year old? And so he's arguing with me, and so he... He writes me a check and hands it to me. I said, well, I know this is not over because <laughs> there's no way this is going to, we're going to be able to afford this. And so, so went back and forth with insurance. And, and so uh, Mark Garcia, where's Mark? Mark's here today. Mark's our contractor. And so Mark put a bid together. And so I said, Mark, just really, what is it going to cost? So Mark was there. And the other adjust adjuster comes in, completely different reality for this guy. This guy comes in and he starts, starts looking. They were going to argue over us with our cabinets. Our cabinets got water damage on the bottom. They said, ah, you can just create new boxes. You can use the faces. You could just refinish them. These are like original, like over 20-year-old cabinets, you know, like stock cabinets. And I'm like, really? He goes, oh, yeah. I'm like, those are like particle board. They're not even real wood. So that was the first guy. This guy comes in. I love what he said. He starts walking through the house, and this is how he phrased it. He looked at the cabinets. He goes, I'm buying those. I'm buying that floor. I'm buying that wall. He's like, I'm buying everything. I said, you are? He goes, oh, it's all mine. He goes, I'm paying you for all of it. He goes, you're getting everything. I'm like, I like this. In fact, he, put, he goes, come over to my computer. He goes, I'm not supposed to do this. He said, well, I'm going to show you, he goes, without your contractor's bid, what I would have given you. And his bid was $5,000 more than what Mark's bid was, which, by the way, we, we threw in a few extra things after that, <laughs> which the adjuster was fine with. But I walked in, and he walked in, and he's just like, listen, you, you're going to get a brand new downstairs. That's what he said. We're not going to give you refurbished cabinets or refurbished flooring or anything. It's all going to be brand new. What's beautiful is when I open my cabinets and I pull out the drawers, they work. <laughs> because they're not the 20-year-old rails and hinges. They're actually all brand new. That's what God wants to do. And that's what I love is Jesus walks in our life and says, I'm buying that sin. I'm buying that brokenness. I'm taking that on myself. Why? Because it's going to be brand new when I'm done. 
that's what Jesus wants to do in us. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus. He wants to transform us, which means we get everything brand new. Second thing, look at verse, verses 14 and 15. God's process of salvation has to do with life through death. So look at 14 and 15. This is always puzzling. What is Jesus talking about? He says this. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? Now, obviously, to Nicodemus, he knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was referring to Numbers 21, where Israel was complaining, as they always did, and so God allowed venomous snakes among them, and some of them were bitten and died. And in order for them to be saved from that, God told Moses to take a bronze stake on a pole and to hold that up. And if people looked at that symbol, which, by the way, is the universal symbol for healthcare, you see it in a lot of hospitals. Where did it come from? It came from the Bible. If they looked at that, they would be saved from the poison of the snakes. And so Jesus says, just like what Moses did, I'm going to be lifted up on a stake or on a post, but it's the cross. And if I'm lifted up that way, then all people will be drawn to me and they will be saved. We always sing, oh, if Jesus be lifted up, but what he's saying is, is Jesus, if I be crucified, then all people will be drawn to me. Now, why is that difficult? Because as this unfolds, we'll see Nicodemus will struggle with this because Nicodemus doesn't have a category for a Messiah who dies. Because he's a good Jew, and the Jews believed the Messiah was coming, but they didn't believe the Messiah was coming and then was going to die and resurrect. The Messiah was coming, was going to live forever and set up the kingdom of Israel forever on the earth. And so Jesus says, no, if I'm lifted up, and I'm ultimately, I'm sacrificed, then, then that's when it's going to work. And Nicodemus is like, wait a second. And that, that doesn't work for us either. We, we don't think that, we think life comes from life. Life comes from death. It does. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a concept that you and I have to embrace every day of our life. Life doesn't come from life. Life comes from death. Death has to come first. But we, we just want to keep adding life, life, life. No, no, no. It's death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. That's the journey of following Jesus. And Jesus is trying to communicate that to Nicodemus, but, but he's not understanding it. And that's hard for us to understand because we don't want to die. We do not want to die to ourselves in order for God to renew us and resurrect us into what we're supposed to be. But death has to be complete. Everything apart about of who we are has to die if we're going to follow Jesus. That means for Nicodemus, he has to set aside his religious status and his knowledge of God and his, his, his place in Judaism in order to follow Jesus. And, and that means for you and I to fully be who Jesus wants us to be, we have to be willing to die to our plans and our hopes and our dreams and our sin and our failure and everything and then let God resurrect what he wants it to be. See, because what I'm convinced is that some of us are not living the life we're supposed to live because we haven't died yet. We're struggling in following Jesus because we still haven't died. We just keep adding something on, but we're never giving anything up. We're never, that's why Jesus says to find life, you have to do what? You have to lose it. This is like a basic concept for Christianity, but it's so hard. That's why I want to have people sit down in counseling sessions, and we go through the struggles in their life. Not every single time, but I'm telling you, 50% of the people I sit with counseling, counseling issues are convinced they're saved, but they've never laid their life down. They've never said, they've never come convinced to death comes first, then life. And we go back to this, ba I've had people sit in my office who have known Jesus for 25 years. And I walk them to that, I'm like, have you done this in your life? Well, no. I go to church. I'm a good person. I read my Bible. I was raised in the church. I said, but have you ever died? Have you ever died to yourself? Have you ever just given up and surrendered everything you are to Jesus? Well, yeah, sometimes. No, all the time. I think for some of us, we're, we're struggling because we haven't let go of our lives yet. And that's what Jesus is communicating. His plan of salvation requires death first. We have to be willing to die to ourselves 
in order for us to be resurrected. We had some neighbors up in Oregon, and uh, they wanted their, their lawn, I thought, was pretty good. But for them, as Oregonians, I guess, because a lot of pride, you know, everything's green there. Their, their lawn wasn't very good, and so they wanted to have new, some new sod laid down. And I remember they went through the process of getting sod, but you know what had to come before they got new sod? They had to kill off their current grass completely. So I remember them getting these big things of Roundup. They attached their hose, and they just sprayed layers and layers of Roundup on their grass. And a couple days later, it started to turn brown. Within a week or two, it was completely dead. In fact, to the point where it was flaking and wind was blowing it off, and it was just ugly. It was horrible. But then they brought in the roller till. They got all the dead grass out. They got just clean soil, and here came the sod, and they had probably the nicest grass in our neighborhood. But the process was what? Death first before life. You can't take sod and throw it on top of live grass because whatever's underneath will eventually come through. Same thing's true with our life. You can't take the life of God and lay it over our life and think it's going to be different because what's underneath the surface will come up again through it until it's finally killed off and we become who Jesus wants us to be. Third thing, God's process of salvation has to do with relationship through rescue. So here's a couple of the famous verses that we, we know. Verse 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is so important. God sends his Son into the world. Our approach to God has, ha, takes on a couple of different kind of avenues. We in our life try to sometimes reach up to God. That's what religion is. It's building on our knowledge and our, spiritual, uh, our spirituality and how good we are to try to get access to God. Well, if that doesn't work, then we, we go with the opposite direction. That is, we'll run from God because it doesn't work. So we're running from God or we're reaching up, and that's kind of the tension that we live in. We're either reaching up or we're running from, but we're never just being. We're never just encountering. Why? Because verse 17 says that God's what sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world. The sending and the initiating comes from where? From God, not from us. We don't find God. God finds us. We think we find God, but he's been pursuing us our entire life until our eyes are open and we see him. And he's always going after us. What does that mean? That means what God maybe wants from you is that you would just be still. Stop trying to achieve God and stop trying to run from God, but just be and let God reach you. But man, when we become Christians, we are so proficient at doing, 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 doing. We, we've stopped being human beings. And we become human beings, doings in the church, and it's all about activities and making sure that we're doing good things for God. And God's not interested in that. In fact, we know. In fact, let me read, probably pretty familiar to many people. It's the difference between Mary and Martha, two sisters who approach Jesus completely different ways. Let me read the story to you, reminded. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 40. It says, as Jesus and his, his disciples came or continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him in her home. Her sister Mary, here it is, sat at the Lord's feet. Listen to what, and listen to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing, and she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. What did Mary discover that Martha didn't? Jesus wanted relationship. Jesus wanted her to be present, but she was too busy. 
part of the reason that the joy of our salvation is the fact that we don't have to earn it. This is a big issue for me. I sometimes feel guilty for not doing enough for God. And it's a challenge, Kim, my wife, she knows. This is, this is one of my challenges. And so I, I, I help heap shame and guilt on myself for a lot of things. It's like, oh, I should be doing more. I should be doing better. And one of the things that Kim and I have talked about, even for myself, is that, you know, we foster and we love fostering. But for a while there, when we were fostering, we have a baby right now, is I felt good when we had a foster baby in my home because I felt like I was at least doing something for God. And so it was almost like when a new baby would come in, it was like it kind of appeased the shame in me that I wasn't doing enough for God. We're like, hey, I'm a foster parent. I'm reaching kids and families, and so I'm a good person. Until God said, really? I thought this was about kids and families, not about you. And it challenged me to think, wait a second. If I'm doing this to somehow justify my goodness before God, then I shouldn't be doing this at all because this isn't about me. This is about what God's doing through me in the lives of people. Anybody willing to admit you've ever felt that? Feel good because I'm doing something good for God. What about just being feel good because you're doing, doing good for something else that pleases God, but it doesn't mean that you earn any more from God because God already unconditionally loves you. It's so wonderful to do things without shame. It is. It's very freeing, but it's a challenge for us. And then there's a final thing, and that is the process of, of salvation from God's perspective has to do with freedom through transparency. And here's, this is a tough one. This was a tough one for Nicodemus. It's a tough one for us. Verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the way to salvation is in the light, not in the darkness. Which means, in order for you and I to be saved, we have to step and be fully, step out and be fully transparent before God. We don't have any closets or dark corners or hidden secrets. We have it out in front. Because if we are holding something back, if we are living, in fact, this is really, this hits a religious person right between the eyes. You can't tell me that Nicodemus was perfect, but he had become proficient in being religious and making it look like he was perfect. But I'm sure he had a lot of secrets. He had a lot of areas in his life that he didn't want God to touch. But Jesus says, listen, if you're going to be born again, you have to step into the light. That means you have to own all the stuff in your life that needs to be brought to the surface. Everything has to come out. And that's why even when I've sat down with people, it's like when you and I have staggered confession, it's not true confession. Confession. It's like, I'll confess, but I'm not going to let God know everything that's going on, which, by the way, newsflash, he already knows. <laughs> but we're just like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give this to God, but I know there's still a lot of debris back here that I'm going to hang on to. That's what Jesus is talking about. If you're not stepping into the light until you step fully into the light. And I know here, this is, this is a challenge us because this is what I encounter so many times when I talk with people the church should be the most transparent safest place on the planet and sadly it's not we come into relationship with people who are supposed to be followers of Jesus and we can't be honest about our crap we just can't be because if I bring it all out into the light people are going to judge me people are going to reject me people are going to look at me differently this is the church. We've talked about this. This is the place where people should feel the safest about their stuff. It doesn't justify our sin. It doesn't mean that I come and I guess to get to do what I want to do, but I can walk into an arena with people where I can be honest about my struggles. I can tell people. I can, I can be real about what's going on, and nobody will look at me cross-eyed, and nobody will sit on the other side of the auditorium from me. Everybody will rally around me and embrace me. That's what so many people are dying for in the church today. 
That's what we should have. In fact, I had a conversation with a couple people about this recently, but I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who's a pastor up in Oregon. In fact, my daughter is at his church right now going through an internship. His own struggle of addiction in his life as a pastor. And then finally when that came out, he stepped back from leading and being a pastor. And, and one of the first things he did as he went through recovery is he started going to an AA meeting. He had never set foot in an AA meeting in his life. He said he started going, and he said, when he came out of those eight meetings, he said, these are the most real people I've ever met in my entire life. He said, these people are more honest than the church that I pastor. He said, that's not right. He said, I, how can I walk into an AA meeting and I can bear my soul and feel accepted, but I step into a church and I can't tell people what's really going on in my life because they'll reject me. Something's not right. He went through a profound transformation in his own life, which led to a profound transforma transformation in his church. The church should be like an AA meeting. Those of you who've been to meetings, you're like, yeah, I know. It should be the honesty level and the transparency. Why We should be able to walk fully into the light as broken people so that everybody knows what's going on, and yet still, as Jesus does for us, we do for each other, we fully embrace our brokenness. That's the only hope that we have. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come and join me because we're going we're to lead towards a time of communion together. But, but what I would like to do as we, as we prepare for this is understanding the, the journey of Nicodemus. Well, what's the outcome of his journey? Well, we don't have a whole lot more recorded of Nicodemus' life except what we do have is when Jesus dies, and his body's being taken down from the cross, who's there to help? Nicodemus. And so we can assume from that that of the many followers that Jesus had, very few of them were at the foot of the cross. But most likely, Nicodemus was there. And I want you to capture what that means. There were religious leaders at the foot of the cross. Do you remember from the Gospels what they were doing? They were mocking Jesus. They were spitting at him. But Nicodemus was probably there quietly standing and watching and knowing this is the one who reveals God to me. Because when all the religious leaders left after Jesus died, who stayed behind? Nicodemus did. Which means that Nicodemus finally got it. That means he finally understood this is what it means to be born again. That he was willing to risk his own religious reputation to stand at the foot of the cross. And not only to stand there when Jesus was dying, but to be present when Jesus was being lifted out. And to actually help this, his fallen Savior. Talk about transparency. Talk about walking in the light. Nicodemus stepped into the spotlight of God at the foot of the cross. And didn't worry about what other people thought about him. Why? Because Jesus was all that mattered to him. As we come to a moment of communion this morning, we're going to go into a song. It's called Remembrance. It may be new to some of you, and so you can pick up the song as you go. But it's going to be a time of more reflection. And this is what I, I want to be true for our church. What stuff needs to come into the light in your life? What is still hidden, being hidden somewhere in, in a dark corner or in a closet somewhere that you know you haven't brought out yet? The first step is to bring it out before God. That's what communion is. Communion is a place where we come to the foot of the cross, be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice, and we say, here's my sin, here's my brokenness, here's my issues, here's my stuff. Jesus, would you take it and would you crucify it on the cross? Would you take what is wrong in me and make it right, exchanging his righteousness for my sin and my brokenness? So as you come in a moment and you're gonna 
go to the different stations around the room and receive those elements. I'm gonna ask you just before the Lord, say, God, this is my stuff. And if you're like, I don't think I have any stuff, then ask the Lord, do I have stuff? Do I have stuff that's still hidden that's not in the light that I wanna bring in the light today? That's step one, that's step one today. Step two, part of the power of breaking the cycle of sin and addiction and failure in our life is that it's one thing to confess to Jesus, but he also calls us to confess to each other. So I'd ask you that maybe it's today at the end of the service as everyone else is leaving, or maybe it's this week, you have somebody you feel like you can trust, that you know you're gonna need to take the next step and say, hey, listen, this is what's going on in my life. I've brought it before Jesus, but now as a point of accountability, I wanna bring it to you because I want freedom in this area. I want to experience what it means to know the God of salvation who saves me and accepts me because everything's brought into the light. I'm dying fully to myself so I can be all that God wants me to be. Would you close your eyes and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, as you said to Nicodemus, if you would be lifted up, if you would be crucified, then people would be drawn to you. Why? Because it's through you that we can be free and we can experience salvation, that we can know God. And so, Lord, wherever we are today, whether we've been walking with you our entire lives, as long as we can remember, maybe even those, Lord, that are here, and maybe they've never come to that place, that each one of us would come to you right now and realize that you are God in human flesh, and you revealed yourself 2,000 years ago and continue to reveal yourself by the presence of your Spirit to us today, that you want to bring salvation to us. In fact, just as I'm praying before we go to communion, if you have never made a commitment in your life that says, I am going to choose to die to the way I've lived my life. I know the way that I've lived my life has led to dead ends. There were hopes that were only crushed because of my own failure and my struggles and my sin. But maybe for the first time today, you're realizing there's hope. There was hope for a guy named Nicodemus who thought he had all the answers. When he encountered Jesus, he realized there was something more. Maybe today for the first time you're realizing there's something more. And that more is the fact that you need to know Jesus today. You need to surrender your life to Jesus today. You need to follow him and bring everything into light. And if that's you and you want to do that for the first time today, then you can. As I'm going to pray in a moment, you would just simply speak in your own words and say to Jesus who is here. He hears your prayers that say, Jesus, I am surrendering my life. I am turning over my sin and my plans and my intentions and my hopes and my dreams and giving my life to you so that I might experience the fullness of life and salvation. So Lord, all of us want to do that today as well. So as we come to communion, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the courage to walk in the light, to offer to you all the stuff that we have so that we might experience the forgiveness that you purchased on the cross, that just as Nicodemus was willing to walk into the light to experience salvation today, we, as we walk to receive the elements, that we would walk in your light that brings freedom and forgiveness and 